So I want you to come with me this morning, please, to the Word of God, uh, to Romans chapter 8. Visiting with us today, it's lovely to have you. Very, very welcome. This is a bank holiday weekend, and no doubt a lot of you will be off tomorrow, and hopefully the sun will still shine. So the eighth chapter of the book of Romans, just two verses at this time, verses 24 and 25. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance or with patience. For we are saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance or with patience. The Bible is a book of hope. The New Testament is a testament of hope. It continually looks forward to a brighter and to a better day. A day without tears, a day without pain and suffering, a day without death, a day without injustice and hatred. In fact, in Revelation 21, first five verses, tells us this, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, saw, and I John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. He that sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, write, for these words are true and faithful. So right at the very last book of the Bible and almost the last chapter, it is a message of hope for a better day in the future. We cannot live without hope. Without hope, our hearts sink in despair. Without hope, there is no light at the end of that dark tunnel. Without hope, we lose our joy, we diminish our faith, we sing in the minor key, we paint in drab colors. So hope is absolutely vital and important for each of us. Book of Proverbs chapter 13 verse 12 declares that hope deferred makes the heart sick. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. But what is this hope that the Bible speaks of? Is it different than the normal hope that every human being has got at some point in their life? And if it is different, how is it different? What is our hope based on? What is 
causes us to hope against all odds. Now, first of all, the Bible is not hope-so-ism. Hope-so-ism is more wish upon a star. It's a flight of fancy. Hope-so-ism is what drives people to do the lottery every week. Millions upon millions upon millions of people are hoping to win the big one. And it's a wish upon a star stuff, isn't it? It really is. It's just kind of, well, maybe, perhaps, I wish so, but out of the millions and millions and millions that do it every week, there's usually only a couple of winners, isn't there? And so that's the kind of a hope that has made Camelot, the country that runs the, the National Lottery, has made them billions. But yet somehow in our thinking, even as believers, in our thinking we have become guilty of this kind of whimsical hope as well. If you say, I'm, I'm hoping for something, that may seem like that you're not really believing in faith. Oh, you're just hoping. Where's your faith then? That's what it sounds like if you say, well, I'm hoping. But if you're saying that in a biblical sense, then it's entirely different. In fact, hope and faith are not complete opposites. Hope and faith go together. Biblical hope and biblical faith are in a sense joined together. One leads to the other. Actually, hope and faith are part of the same process. And at the end of it is hope and faith together that brings the fulfillment of that which you have Believe for. That's why Hebrews 11 and 1 says that faith is the substance of things hoped for. It's amazing how many times where you see faith, you see hope linked into it, and hope you see faith linked into it. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. The New Living Translation puts it this way, faith is the confidence that what we hope for will actually happen. It gives us assurance about things we cannot see. Hugo Victor distinguished faith from hope. He said, by faith alone we are sure of eternal things that they are, but by hope we are confident that we shall have them. So all hope presupposes faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. Faith substantiates hope. Faith, in other words, gives something for hope to stand upon. Hope stands upon the shoulders of faith and sees beyond and can believe for that which is beyond us. Faith needs something to substantiate. And this is where hope comes in. Hope needs faith. Faith needs hope. The two go together. 
Faith needs something to substantiate. Hope, in a sense, is the dream, but faith is the thing that gives substance to the dream. Are you still with me? So when you say, I'm hoping for something, think about what you have just said. Are you thinking about it in a biblical sense, or are you just thinking of the way it's whimsical, the way everybody else out there thinks? Well, maybe, maybe not. I'm just hoping. But if you begin to see that hope is something that's linked with faith, it becomes a strong thing in our lives. It becomes a biblical, scriptural thing that Scripture speaks much of. You see, whenever the writer of the Hebrews was saying what he said in the book of Hebrews, remember who he's addressing. He's talking to Christians, particularly Jewish Christians who were under tremendous extreme pressure and the temptation to draw back away from Christianity was great. All that they had dreamed of, all that they had hoped for, this peace and victory in this life in Christ, eternal life, the resurrection, all of these things and more, all of that which we have if we become followers of Christ. That was their hope. That was their dream as it were. But under their present circumstances, their hope was being deferred. And their hearts were sick. And it seemed like that all that they had hoped for, had been believing for, it seemed further away than ever. In fact, things were so bad and so difficult that some of them even stopped coming to church and some of them would stop even following Christ altogether. So Paul tells them, it's time to start using your faith. If you want that hope to come alive and to be a reality and to see that which you hope for come true, it needs to stand on the shoulders of faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. It substantiates it, builds the foundation for it. And so the writer to the Hebrews is basically saying, let faith be the solid foundation of your hope. It's as if he's saying your hope was genuine, it was real, it was a noble thing you were believing, it was worth believing in, so don't give up on your hope. The title of my message today is, When You Haven't Got a Hope, Believe in Hope. When you haven't got a hope, believe in hope. Now, in Romans chapter 8, where we started, verse 18, just before we text that we read, Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creature, sorry, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Then he goes on to say, For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, 
but we who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly awaiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we are saved in this hope. Now, you budding preachers out there, if I had to read on into verse 26, where it talks about the Holy Spirit helping us in our prayer life, You'd have seen there that the Holy Spirit groans within us. So notice here there's three groanings in these three or four verses. All creation groans. Then we groan. And then the Holy Spirit groans. All right? So you budding preachers, there's, a, there's some bones. Why don't you go out and put the flesh in that? All right? I'm not going to give you any more on that one. Put some flesh in those bones. You'll get a message out of it. Now, notice here what Paul said. For we are saved in this hope. He said, but I, I, I thought that he said also in Ephesians 2 and 8 that it is in grace and it's through faith that we are saved. Well, that is true. We're saved by grace through faith. But wait a minute. He just says, for we are saved in this hope. So what's he talking about here? He's not talking about your salvation here. He's talking about the hope of the redemption of your body. Remember we spoke on that many times before? How that would you die in the resurrection? You will have a resurrection body like unto Christ's glorious body. Now that is a great hope for the Christian believer. That when we go into the grave, even though our bodies return to dust, but one day God will give us a resurrected, resurrection body, a new body like unto his glorious body. That's a wonderful hope to hold on to. Now see how future, all hope is future by the way, faith is now, but all hope is future. But that's what we got to believe. That's a great hope to hold on to, to believe with by faith. Hope is much more important, perhaps, than you realize. And then, in Romans chapter 4, Romans chapter 4, speaking of Abraham, verse 13, for the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect, because the law brings about wrath, for where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore it is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations in the presence of him whom he believed. God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did, speaking of Abraham here, who contrary to hope, in hope, believed, so that he became the father of many nations, according to that which was spoken. You remember how Abraham at 100 years old, and his wife was 90, 
how that they had a son of promise. And how God kept them waiting 25 years from he first told them they were going to have this child. And just to make absolutely sure that there would be no natural hope in having this child. That this would be a, have to be a thing that he'd have to believe for. God waited and waited and waited until all natural biological hope from both of them was absolutely gone and finished. Then it says, who contrary to natural hope, contrary to all of that human hope that you could possibly have, contrary to that, when that was dead and gone, he believed in hope. What's the hope he believed in? The spiritual hope. The hope that's linked to faith. The hope that's always future. Hasn't happened yet. But he had to believe. He had to hope in a genuine, real, biblical, scriptural way that it was going to happen. And he did. And he became known as the father of faith. And so hope is absolutely vitally important when you have absolutely no hope, you can believe in hope when there is no hope, contrary to that which you could hope in, humanly speaking. When it's completely gone, you still have hope, Bible hope, hope that's linked to faith. Are you still with me? Now, in Isaiah chapter 10. Well, let me just read you a verse from Isaiah chapter 11. First of all, first verse. There shall come forth a rod from the stem or the stump of Jesse. From that which seems dead. Did you ever see an old dead stump of a tree. I, I had to cut out a bush from my garden the other day. It's a rare thing for me, isn't it, you're thinking? It was dead as a dodo. And so I had to cut the branches away and it's got to be pulled out and rooted out and thrown away. It's dead, it's gone. Whether the frost got it this winter, I do not know, or a fungus, whatever, but it's gone. But it says there shall come a rod from the stem, from that dead, dried up old stump of Jesse. And a branch shall grow out of his roots. That's prophetic of Christ, by the way. Isaiah 53, verse 2. But, getting back to this. Isaiah here, the prophet, is foreseeing a time when the children of Israel, the people of God, were going to be overrun by the Assyrians. And that Jerusalem would be raised and that the temple would be destroyed, and that they'd be taken into captivity. It's a bleak, dark, seemingly hopeless picture. He has prophetically painted to them. And do you know what? It came true. Absolutely. The Assyrians overran. Jerusalem was raised. The temple was destroyed. They were taken into captivity for years, for years, for years, for years, for years. And you can imagine there would come a point in that captivity when all hope would be lost that they would ever return. 
that their city ever could be rebuilt, that the temple could be rebuilt, that they could ever come back. They had no natural hope for that at all. And God knew that there would be no hope left in them for that. So God gives them another prophetic vision through the prophet Isaiah. And in chapter 10, verse 20, it shall come to pass in that day that the remnant of Israel and such as have escaped of the house of Jacob will never again depend on him, on him who defeated them, but will depend on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. The remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. For through your people, O Israel, for though your people, O Israel, be as the sand of the sea, a remnant of them will return. The destruction decreed shall be overflow with righteousness. For the Lord God of hosts will make a determined end in the midst of the land. So he's telling them two things. He says, first of all, in your captivity, even though it will be long, and even though you will have no natural hope of ever coming back, but what will happen is at one point, as I hear his prophesying to him, you will return to the Lord your God. In your spirit, in your mind, in your thoughts, in your actions, in your deeds, you will return unto the mighty God of Jacob. And having done that, then a remnant will literally, physically, actually return again to Israel. And that would be their hope. When all natural hope would be gone, when they hadn't got a hope in the world, they could believe in hope. They could remember this prophecy. That would give them something to hope for. Do you understand what I'm saying today? When you haven't got a hope, and then in Ezekiel, you remember how in Ezekiel, God gives Ezekiel a wonderful vision in chapter 37. God gives Ezekiel a vision of a great valley and it's full of dry bones. And these bones have been lying a very, very long time and you can imagine lying under the eastern sun bleached white, dry as dust, Total bones, that's all he sees. The hand of the Lord came upon me and brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley which was full of bones. He caused me to pass by them all around and behold, there were very many in the open valley and indeed they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? So I answered, O Lord God, you know. Again he said to me, prophesy to these bones, say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord God to these bones, surely I will cause breath to enter into you, and you shall live, and I will put sinews on you, and bring flesh upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, then you shall know that I am the Lord." So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied there was a noise, and suddenly a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to bone. Indeed, as I looked, the sinews and the flesh came upon them, and the skin covered them over, but there was no breath in them. 
He said to me, prophesy to the breath, son of prophesy, son of man, say to the breath, come, says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath came into them, and they lived, stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. And he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They indeed say, our bones are dry, our hope is lost and we ourselves are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves and bring you into the land of Israel and you shall know that I am the Lord and as I have opened up your graves, O my people, and brought you up from your graves, I will put my spirit in you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your land. Then you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it, and have performed it, says the Lord. Simple but profound prophecy. That's actually being fulfilled right now as you sit and listen to me. Over two and a half thousand years ago, Ezekiel prophesied that even though Israel were lost without hope among the nations, dispersed among the nations, the nations were their graveyards, dead, without any kind of hope of ever returning, dry bones in the valley, prophesy, see them come together, bone to his bone, stand up, breathe life into them. They stood up an exceedingly great army and God says, I will bring them back to their land. That is happening today. This is prophecy being fulfilled even in your ears and in your sight. There are organizations, great organizations like the Ebenezer Trust that her sister there has been involved with for many, many years. The IC, uh, the International Christian Embassy of Jerusalem, and others, other, other uh, Christian organizations who has made it their business to bring Jews back from lands all over the world to Israel, from Russia, from Canada, from America, from the Ukraine, from all over the Eastern Bloc countries, from everywhere, from everywhere in the world, and brings them free passage back into Israel. And they have come by the hundreds of thousands. And that is in our generation. We're seeing Ezekiel's prophecy fulfilled in our day. And it's a great hope that has arisen in their hearts that somehow one day they could go to Israel. And even though they come, many of them in, in poverty, many of them can't even speak their language. They have to learn Hebrew language, but they want so desperately to come to their homeland and they come by the hundreds of thousands. There's just so many scriptures that time's not really allowing us today to go into. I, I could read me a dozen scriptures uh, proving that God would bring them back. Give, the, give up, O North. Bring them from the North. Where is the North from Israel? Russia. I've told you before, for years, they were refused passage. All Jews out of Russia, they were called refuseniks. Every time they'd apply, they were turned down. But then suddenly, Russia said, you can go. And they came by the thousands. 
God put a hope in their hearts. When all hope was gone, when you haven't got a hope, believe in hope. It's a biblical principle. It's a wonderful thing. Do you know the amazing thing is, you know, that's one of the great, one of the great evidences of Christ's return is the Jews coming back to their homeland. That's, that's one of the great last day prophetic signs. And it's happening in our generation. So whenever we say the Lord is about to come, we're not, we're not just saying that because it's a nice Christian eschatological thing to say. We're saying that because it is scripturally accurate and because the Jews are returning by their hundreds of thousands as the Bible prophesied they would in the last days. So the, the clock is ticking towards the midnight hour, friends. Now, the amazing thing is that whenever Ezekiel prophesied that and over that period of two and a half thousand years that for so many, many hundreds and hundreds of those years that Israel wasn't even a nation anymore. But in May 1948 God made them a nation again in one day as the scripture foretold. Can a nation be born in one day? Bible says, prophet says, yes it can. And it was and it did. The amazing thing is that Hebrew is the only language that's ever, ancient language, ever been successfully revived again today. King David, if he walked into Jerusalem today, he could book into the King David Hotel named after him. And he could speak his natural language and they would understand them perfectly. No other nation in the world has ever happened to. And people say God's finished with a Jew. Don't believe it, friends. There's a great hope in their heart. And even though they don't understand why, and they don't even maybe realize it's biblical, but it is true. We're almost finished here. First Peter chapter three. Sorry, first Peter chapter one, beg your pardon. And verse three. First Peter one, verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope. That's an interesting term he uses, isn't it? Has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, and that does, that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, why is Peter writing here about a living hope? Why is he writing about the resurrection from the dead? Well, in chapter 4, he gives us a big clue. This lets us know to whom he's writing what they were going through when he wrote this little epistle. Chapter 4, verse 12, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. 
but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. For their part he is blasphemed, but in your part he is glorified. Now what's Peter talking about? Fiery trials, which is to try you. Don't be surprised, he says. Well, that perhaps is more significant than what you realize. Because at this time when Peter's writing to these Christians, you know, for a long time that, that Christians, because they were treated as a, a, a Jewish sect, for a long time, Rome really didn't bother with them. And as long as Rome uh, acquiesced, sorry, as long as the Jews acquiesced to Rome, then they let them have their religion, let them worship their own God, blah, blah, blah. Fine, you just go ahead and do that. You have your priest, you have your high priest, you do all of that there. But as long as you don't, that doesn't contradict Rome. But the trouble was there came a time when it did contradict Rome. There came a time when Roman emperors wanted to be worshipped. And suddenly, Christians would not bow to any other god. Would not accept even burning a pinch of incense to Caesar. And because they would not do this, then they came under tremendous pressure, tremendous persecution against Christians, particularly Christians. So much so, in fact, that, that Nero was, was having his garden parties lit up by burning Christians on stakes poured with tar. That shows you what kind of an eagle evil, wicked monster he was. So Peter's writing to them here and he's telling them, even though you're having these fiery trials, even though things right now are as bad as they possibly could be, he says, but you shouldn't be surprised about that. We think of what they did to Christ, you shouldn't be surprised. But he says, we have, in spite of all of that, and even if, even if you have to Die that way, way, horrible as it is, even if that has to be, he says, we have a living hope. The resurrection from the dead through Jesus Christ. So he's saying that even when the very worst would happen in this life, you've still got a living hope. Because it's not the end. The resurrection means there's a new beginning. An eternal beginning that will never end. So you see how that hope, this living hope, this hope, this biblical hope was such a big part of the early Christian church. They preached about it all the time. They talked about it all the time. Very quickly before we finish. What are our reasons for believing in hope? Very quickly. First of all, because God is faithful who promised. Numbers 23, 19. Let me read it. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, will he not make it good? God is faithful who promised. Titus 1 and 2 talks about God who cannot lie. Hebrews 6, 18 says, it is impossible for God to lie. There's another scripture that says that God even exalts his 
word above his name. And as I said to you before, why is that important? Because your name is only as good as your word, isn't it? Your name is only as good as your word. If you don't keep your word, your name's not good, is it? As soon as your name's mentioned, oh, I am her. I believe a word they say. But if your word is good, your name will be good. So God exalts his word even above his name. So when God promises his very character, his very name is at stake, this is why he keeps his word. 2 Corinthians 1 and 20, all the promises of God are in him, Christ, yes, and in him, amen, to the glory of God through us. Why should we believe in hope? Because God is faithful who promised. Why should we believe in hope? Because it has an enduring quality. 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. Mostly read at every wedding. And now abides faith. What's the next one? Hope and love. These three. Now we know the greatest is love, but these three. Faith, hope, and love. Paul says in that chapter that prophecies will fail. Tongues will cease. Knowledge will vanish away. But hope will remain. It's permanent. It's a rock. It is stands when all else fails. So that's the second reason why we can believe in this hope, because it has an enduring quality. And thirdly, because hope is something God develops in us through the struggles which we face. See, God uses the struggles that we face to develop something in us. In Romans chapter 5, I'll just read a couple of verses quickly. Therefore, verse 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace by which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance or patience. And perseverance or patience produces character and character hope. Now, hope does not disappoint. Now, get what Paul's saying here. When you're going through difficulties and trials and tests of life, none of us like it, none of us want it. We generally hate it. But if we realize when we're going through that, that God in his wisdom, can use that to produce hope within us that does not disappoint, that will not go away. He talks there about tribulation, and tribulation produces patience, and patience produces character, and that produces hope, a hope that does not disappoint. Job was a godly man who faced all kinds of trials and troubles in his life, did he not? I mean, when you read the book of Job, you, you look at it and you think, how in the world did this man ever survive this? One thing after another, just bang, 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 bang. And when you read the book of Job, you'll see him 
First of all, he's in the hand of Satan. Then we see him in the hands of men, his comforters so-called. Then we see him in the hand of God. In the hand of Satan, what did he get? He got tribulation, bucket loads of it. I mean, it was just shoveled to him. How much can a man take of tribulation? I mean, he got more than his share of it, didn't he? At the hand of Satan. But that produced patience in him. At the hands of men, what did he get? He got ridicule. He got criticism. He got blamed for his troubles. That stretched that patience to the limit. But what did that produce? Just character. Just character in him. And then at the hand of God, he was brought to that place of hope. The kind of hope that does not disappoint. In spite of all of his losses, at the end of it, he had mighty gains. <laughs> when you read the end of the story and you see what God gave him back, it's incredible. Twice as much. In fact, when you read the end of the story of Job, you'll find that even Job was a much better man at the end of it than he was at the beginning of it. Even though he was a godly, righteous man, he was a more godly and righteous man at the end of it than he was at the beginning of it. You see, hope is something God develops in us through the struggles of life that we face. This is why the early disciples could say rejoice in the midst of it. Because they realized. They had, they had caught this. They understood this perfectly. That's what kept them going. Then because, this is the final scripture, then because hope keeps her focus in this life on the next life. What's your focus in this life? If your focus in this life is only in this life, then I'm very sorry for you. You're not really living as a Christian ought to live. But if your hope in this life is fixed on the next life, then your priorities will be right in this life. And you'll enjoy your Christian experience much, much more than you ever thought you could if you're not focusing on this life. This, if this is the beginning and the end of it, then I'm very sorry. I say, well, I know I'm going to die and go to heaven. Listen, how often do you think about that? How much of your, your thoughts are geared towards the next life? Because this life on earth is very brief. It's very fleeting. Here today, gone tomorrow. Brother David Wilkerson, the great mighty man of God, out driving with his wife after a meal there just on Thursday night, was it? Thursday evening? Had an 18-wheeler truck. And in a second, he was in the glory. He was well prepared. He was well ready to go. But if ever a man was thinking about the next life, it was him. If ever a man preached about the next life, it was him. If ever a man was not focused on this life, it was Wilkerson. So when his time came, he was ready to go. What about us? Little book of Titus. Let me just read this to you. Titus chapter 2. Verse 11, for the grace of God, Titus was a pastor, and Paul was writing to Titus, 
For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. How often is that in our thinking? Are we looking for his return? Or does the thought scare us to death? Paul's writing to this pastor and he said, this is what you're to preach. The hope of the glorious appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Tell your people that's a great hope to have. Who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God, Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now listen. For us to live a fulfilling Christian life on this earth, you've got to have your focused on eternity. That doesn't mean to say that we go about this world in some kind of airy fairy land because we have responsibilities, we have jobs, we have families, we have homes, we have churches to run, we have all kinds of responsibilities and God doesn't say forget about those and just think about the next life. But listen, we can get so wrapped up in all of our responsibilities and all of our pleasures and all of our this, that and the other in this life that we have no even thought of the next life. And let me tell you, and every single one of us could be taken away from this life in a second, in a heartbeat. And that's why the Bible tells us to get focused on the right things. And when you're focused on the right things, and you've got an eye to eternity, and you're saying to yourself, God, is what I'm doing in life, is how I'm conducting my life, is this something that will be rewarded in eternity? Is this something that will glorify God in eternity? Never mind here. And if it is, then you're living that great hope and you're believing that Christ will return and that when he does return, that we'll be ready for his return and we'll be living as such that we are ready for his return. Amen. This is the Christian life. So much of Christianity today is so airy, fairy, wishy-washy. You can do anything, live any way you like, do whatever you like. It doesn't really matter. You want to get to heaven at the end of it. Rubbish. It's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that while we live in this life as Christians, we've got to get our eye on eternity and live this life for eternity so that it's going to count in eternity. That's the main thing. Amen? So when you haven't got a hope, believe in hope. The Bible hope. The Scripture hope. Amen? Let's pray.